Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. If you're new to the show, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We're getting toward the end of the year, and it's a great opportunity to evaluate where we are and where we'd like to go. As I was planning what I wanted to focus on today, I thought about the process I've gone through of stepping into new ways of being, and how that process of becoming something a little different, a little new, often required letting go of some aspects of who I was. Sometimes we become so attached to a part of ourselves, a thought, a feeling, or some view about the way that things are or the way that they should be, the way they even need to be, that it becomes very difficult to imagine life without that deeply entrenched view. It's almost a kind of fixation or an obsession that we have about ourselves or our lives that can keep us trapped. So today we're going to be exploring how we can go through a process of letting those things go. And to help me do that, I'm joined by Dr. Rick Hansen. He's a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, what do you think about this? I think it's a great topic. And I'm hearing the soundtrack for ch-ch-ch-changes, et cetera, et cetera, going through my mind here. Maybe we should play it on the YouTube. You're dating yourself a little bit with this reference here, dad. Oh, I think it might even... You know, have even been before my time, I forget. <laughs> yeah, it's a great topic. I mean, embedded in it are these two meta themes of freedom and unfreedom. You know, on the one hand, becoming free and enacting that freedom inside our own minds in terms of who we can allow ourselves to freely be and become. And also mm-hmm. balancing that What are the things that we get attached to? Our rigidities, fixations, our insistences, and how can we become more flexible? As they talk about in ACT, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy from Stephen Hayes and others. One way to kind of think about this is through the framework of self-concept, which we've talked about on the podcast in the past. And self-concept is just this kind of mental picture of who we are. And it might include things like our beliefs and our views, our traits, But what I really want to focus on today is this kind of dual process that tends to underlie most useful change, where on the one hand, we let go of some things that, for whatever reason, just aren't doing it for us anymore. I I don't really love the the language of like limiting beliefs, where there's this thing Mm. that's holding you back, and if you just shed it, your life would suddenly change, because for starters, I just don't think that it really works that way in practice. And also, frankly, sometimes there are some things that could be really great for us or really great for like a moment in time, but maybe they're not so appropriate for this new moment that we're moving into. And that can be some of the the most challenging stuff uh, to work with, actually. And I would love to start here by giving kind of a practical example of what this really looks like so people can kind of relate it to their own experience. Uh, How do you think that those kinds of entrenched views or that sort of contracted self sense of self-concept that I'm talking about tends to show up in practice for people? So one way to think of it that helps me is to sort beliefs into beliefs about the self, others, the past, and the future. Hmm. Give you a few examples. I've worked with people clinically who were convinced that they were just revolting to see. They could not tolerate seeing themselves in a mirror. And they would do various things sometimes to disguise their appearance, such as wearing hats or things like that that would really cloak themselves, even though they looked perfectly fine. So that would be a belief about themselves that actually had a lot of implications. Another belief goes to the background notion that you and I have explored here of object relations in which there's a basic paradigm of self and other. And so there might be a belief that others, let's say, are cold, uncaring, when in fact, others are just the usual mix of humanity. You know, some some jerks. They got their saints. pluses, they got their minuses. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, most totally. folks in the middle, that, that would be another example. So based on that belief, um, then a person would place tend to play small and become hyper, you know, independent, autonomous, and not ever want to depend upon other people because of that belief. And there can be beliefs about the past. Like uh, I had a pretty strong belief related to my own childhood for quite some time that I had been a wimp, and it was kind of ashamed of that that I'd been weak, small, and late in my twenties, I had this revelation. I realized that, in fact, I'd been a nerd, but not a wimp, and that 
belief about my past actually affected how I was in the present. Yeah, I would I would love to ask you about that specifically here, Dad, yeah. about that notion how like a view affects behavior in the here and now. And I'm sure that you've also probably seen that, just like you've worked with a lot of couples in counseling, and I'm sure that there have been moments where you're having a conversation with a couple and some belief about self or belief about like the nature of partnership maybe even yeah. is revealed in the room. If it's possible to do without like giving too much detail, could you share like an example of that or how that can show up for people? Yeah, definitely. And, and you're familiar with the notion of appraisals and attributions, which is fancy language for yeah. how do we appraise situations? I mean, they are what they are, but what do they mean? How bad was it? How big was it? You know, how do we appraise things? And then attributions, what are the internal states, especially intentions that we attribute to others? And right there, <laughs> people listening want to sort of look back on or look at an ongoing challenging relationship, it's really interesting to uh, you know investigate, okay, what are my appraisals? What meanings am I giving this? And what perspectives am I coming from? And how about them? And also, what intentions and states of mind are we attributing to each other that could be just wrong, frankly? Another category of beliefs for people that is very consequential is what they consider to be allowable. Yeah, this is a great example. I would love to focus on this a little bit. Yeah, I think about beliefs that fall into the category of can't and must. All right, can't, like mm, I can't, mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to speak up when someone is criticizing me. I can't defend, I'm not allowed to defend myself. Or must, you know, I must be responsible for the suffering and the upsets and the troubles of others. It's my job to fix them. I'm somehow responsible for them. I must tend to them. Other people can't take care of themselves. I have to step in in that way. Yeah, totally. Another category of must, something like I must stand up for myself. I must fight back. So th those are things I often see with couples. And it shows up in all kinds of areas, and daily routines, role definition too. I must be a certain kind of a man, a certain kind of woman. I'll finish by just saying a lot of that is in the background. You know, it's really in the background. Mm, and you often mm -hmm. notice yeah, that. Yeah, yes, this uh, is a really important When point. you change your behavior, just deliberately, you try something different and you start realizing, oh. I think that's such a key point in all of this, Dad, where this stuff is not most of the time for most people at the foreground of our mind. It's normally in the background, and yeah. it's exerting this kind of secret influence over our behavior. And that's part of why this process of like trying to become new in some way, to change in some fundamental way, is often so difficult for people because it turns out that we've got all of this machinery running in the background that is totally impacting us in the foreground, but that we just might not be aware of because these things are there's such essential versions of like our operating system that they become invisible because they're just like the air we're breathing, the wallpaper of the room, the whole thing. Uh, the line that I've heard you use or the kind of joke, uh, like the how's the water today line with the old fish and the young fish and the young fish are just like, what water are you talking about here? Because yeah. it's just what they're swimming in, right? Uh, thinking about myself and using myself as a little bit of an example here. I've talked a lot on the podcast about uh, my own process of trying to loosen up and lighten up over time, how I used to be, and still am in some ways, like a fairly rigid person. I was rigid in my lines of thought, and I was quite rigid in what I viewed as appropriate behavior in particular. That stuff that you were saying earlier about like can't and must and all yeah. of that was like very apparent for me in my world. There were there were right ways to do things and people who didn't do them the right way were wrong and they were bad and I was good. And all of that modeling was like really, really in the way that I thought about the world. And it took a long time and there was very like deliberate process associated with loosening up about some of that stuff. But one of the most important parts of the process was just identifying that it existed in the first place. That's right. And of course in here, and I know we're going to get into what to do about it all, but just to add to another category, narrative, the yeah, story we tell totally. ourselves or the way we tell the story. And there are these really interesting exercises. Again, people are invited to do them where pick an important time in your life or maybe even pick your life altogether and tell the story from a certain perspective. 
Like, for example, tell it perhaps in your usual, probably self-critical way. Okay, fine. <laughs> now tell the story as a story of triumph, as a, a story of great virtue, heroism. That's interesting, right? How do we tell the narrative? Do we tell the narrative, you know, tell the story about other people, that they were morally defective, they had bad intentions, they were corrupt, et cetera, et cetera, fine. Then describe the same events with a sense of, wow, those other people were buffeted by a hundred different currents in the river of their life. And along the way, with a lot of suffering for themselves. Oh, tell the narrative that way. The facts are the same, but the spin is completely different. Versions of that kind of a practice have been very useful for me and I would imagine uh, some versions of them might be useful to the people who are listening. I've also sometimes bumped into people who are very resistant to going through that kind of a process that you're that you're describing here, Dad. That notion of like interpreting the thing through a different light because they they kind of feel like the person, the therapist, the the podcast host, you know, whatever, yeah. is trying to sort of rob them of their of their view. What do you think about that? Oh, I get very interested in uh, the ways in which people get attached, for example, to their grievances and will not budge, even though the experience of grievance and the experience of reproach is painful. It's an unpleasant experience. So what is that? And, I, and then you could scale that, obviously, to situations you know, we see throughout history, we see in countries today, in which a group of people organize, coalesce as a political force, often around some kind of a leader, in which they are really caught up in their grievances. And objectively, a reasonable, fair-minded person would point out, wow, those grievances are actually not that great. You're not that persecuted. You're not that picked upon. You're actually doing pretty well. And in fact, you're actually kind of a top dog. Your grievances, you might be sliding down a little bit in terms of social mm -hmm. standing. But yet the people involved are really attached to their grievances. And I'm seeing that in couples mm -hmm. where clearly uh, a person's self-interest that they understand rationally is to put their grievance in perspective, to not add so many meanings to it, or to to realize that it's not that bad, or you know the other person's made efforts, something like that, and yet, boy, they're not going to let go of it. And I find that one of the really interesting sources of that is when you burrow into someone's psyche, you inquire into it when they've got a, a grievance or a reproach. If you ask them, "Wow, is this harming you?" to hold on to the the fiery coal in your in your hand, even as you fling it at others, right? Is this burning you? Is this hurting you? They go, yeah, it is. It really is. And then you say, well, so let's explore let, you know, letting go of it. And what you start to bump into sometimes is the belief that if I let go of my grievance against you, that will mean letting you off the hook. I will no longer be able to seek punishment for you, even though I can't possibly punish you because, frankly, you're mm. dead, or you're no longer in my life, or you're a million miles away. I can't punish you. I'm only punishing myself, right? Resentment is like taking poison, waking others, waiting for others to die, or reproach. Like, oh, if I let go of that reproach, I will no longer have a claim on others, and I'll have mm. to function in more autonomous ways that have to do with exchanges of value rather than putting claims on, each, on other people. And that all may sound quite abstract, but when you're in the feeling of it, oh, it's very, very real. Yeah, that was really cool. That was, uh, I think, a, a really helpful aside there, Dad, and also useful for parts of what we're going to talk about okay. today. So what I would love to do here is take like a little bit of a step back, take a slightly wider lens, and just think about this notion of like becoming a new person in some way. Yeah. So here we are, it's toward the end of the year. A lot of people are naturally, you know, they're setting intentions, they're they're planning what they want their New Year's resolutions to be. Your mileage might vary on New Year's resolutions. Mine certainly does. But okay, we've got something. We have some kind of a loose target of a way that we would like to be. And maybe that this is something that we want to like take on that's new and positive. Maybe it's something that we want to let go of that's kind of been bugging us these days. 
often the the shape of this is that there's this thing that's happening right now that's frustrating in some way. There's a pain point, right? There's something that's motivating us to change. And for me, what I've experienced when I've gone through this process is that one of its key characteristics is this kind of uh, repetition compulsion-y feeling, to use that phrase very, very, very loosely. There's this feeling of stuckness where you're just getting kind of trapped in these cycles of behavior and you just don't want them anymore. Then hopefully we get enough kind of space between us and that thing to see that there's something going on that's stopping us from achieving the thing that we want, or there's something that's going on that's kind of perpetuating the thing that we don't want. Then we kind of need to eventually buy into this, to the belief that what we've identified as the impediment is actually the real impediment. I can recall for myself going through a real process where I blamed almost everything other than some of the core like views that I had for what was causing my own suffering, if that makes sense. Like it's, it was so easy to have so many other things that were problematic or that I framed as problematic when truly it was just like an aspect of view that was really holding me back. I'll tell you some things that have really stood out for me. It's a deep, it's a fantastic question that you're raising here. How do we actually change? It certainly has occupied the field of clinical psychology for uh, well over 100 years. So a couple things stand out. There's no substitute for being honest with yourself. In your innermost being, where you really are honest with yourself. And I think to go to bed, criticizing yourself, beating yourself up again, there's some layer that wasn't touched. Because when we're completely honest with ourselves, all the way to the bottom, change begins. So if change isn't happening, I tend to think that, that there are aspects of the whole truth that have not yet been told, at the, particularly at the deeper levels. And sometimes that deeper truth involves opening up to parts of ourselves that have been disowned or marginalized and, and hearing from them more and honoring them and, and giving them you know, more votes at the table uh, inside your mind. So that's one piece of the puzzle. really. Being honest with oneself, deep down inside, is this, is this way of being working? Are the costs worth the benefits? For example, around addictive behaviors, it's fun to get buzzed, right? It's a short-term pleasure, you know, three, four hours, whatever your version of it is, a sports bar, hanging out with friends. Great, great, great. And then you start to come down. And then, you know, your sleep's affected. Then it's the next day. There's this long shadow. Is it really worth it, really? Are those three hours of fun really worth 30 hours of being not your best, not at your best? And you start to recognize those trade-offs. I think that's really important. I think there's another thing that I've been thinking about a lot more lately. I think that if a person is not changing, I think the net vector sum of all the motivations inside them, all the things they care about or care not about, right? The summation of all those bungee cords that are pulling them in different directions adds up to what they actually do. So if people are not changing, I don't mean this as a criticism, just as a statement of descriptive fact, the summation of all that they care about has not been enough to get them to change. And one way to help yourself change is to open up to caring about that which is best for you and increasingly letting go of caring about certain other things like image or certain various rules or beliefs that you've been attached to. Yeah, I think that what you're highlighting here with the, the notion of like all the bungee cords pulling a person in different yeah. directions is that so much of this stuff is like actually very practical in terms of our behavior, right? I was talking with Brad Stolberg recently about his book, Master of Change. And one of the lines that he had that I really liked is, it's easier to do our way into a new way of thinking than think our way into a new way of doing. And that I think kind of highlights what you're talking about here, Dad, where if you find yourself going around and around the rose bushes with a particular thought, 
one of the best ways to kind of get out of that is literally just by trying to be differently and do differently as opposed to trying to think differently or think more about it. And you know, maybe this is maybe I'm a little off brand here because obviously I'm a very thinky person in general and I'm I'm all for having a good thought about something. But man, you can really think yourself into oblivion with a lot of this stuff. And so it can be really helpful to establish some really basic kind of practical behavior-driven notions of how you want this thing to actually show up differently in the world. For me, this really meant kind of practically complaining less when people did things that I didn't like. It was just very practical. It was just like, okay, I'm going to focus on complaining less. Does that kind of check out to you here, Dad? Oh, for sure. Part of what we're talking about, too, is learning. So you throw in stuff like growth mindset, what's your basic attitude and and beliefs like you talk about. Do you believe you can change? And I've just been thinking a lot in the back of my mind, not even so much thinking, I've been reflecting about these three fundamental categories of what we care about. To care about, so how do we evaluate a life or how do I evaluate my life when I look back on it? And there are three, they're kind of three central things. Did Did I bring my heart to it? Did I make efforts? Did I learn along the way? All right. So you have mm. heart, effort, learning. And stepping back from that, do you care about heart? Is it a value for you to be wholehearted, warm-hearted, tender-hearted, sometimes broken-hearted as you engage life with courage and heart? Do you care about making an effort, having a work ethic? An astonishing number of people really do not care about being conscientious, diligent, effortful for its own sake as a value in and of itself, especially when other people are not looking. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. What do you care about? And um, also, do you care about learning? Do you want to grow? And do you want to help yourself learn along the way? I think motivation is fundamental to all this. What do you care about? What are your values? What are your motivations? What do you crave? What do you aspire to? What are your dreams? What are your intentions? It's in that space. And I think often in the the parade, cognition is trailing behind the parade of emotion and motivation and making Mm. up a story as it runs behind that actually is the the surface expression of underlying emotions and, and desires. And so what are your emotions and desires? What do you care about, right? So I think it could be kind of useful for a person to just go, hmm, as I enter the new year, that's our frame here, what do I care about? To go kind of meta, do I care about caring about? Yeah, I do, because I can see that what I care about is the pilot light, right? It's the origin point of what develops. All right, so, and then do I care about Pick these three values I've tossed in, if you like. Do I care about being heartfelt, you know, bringing my heart to it, being sincere? Do I care about effort, uh, showing up, doing my job, so that when I go to bed at the end of the day, I can think, all right, I put in a good day's work, honest day's work, not sweating mm-hmm. bullets, mm-hmm. not 12 hours in the coal mines, just honest day's work. Did I do my part? Did I do my job? And then, hey, did I learn? Did I grow? Did I heal? Did I let go? Did I change for the better? bit by bit, that I learned something new. So then suddenly those become overarching values. And then in the frame of those overarching values, the details of unwinding our neuroticisms and becoming a little more skillful with the people we live with and work with, that becomes then a natural cascade that follows from caring about these three overarching things. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I think that sometimes the the trouble people get into is that they have values that seem like really good values, but they lead to problematic behaviors. Does that make sense? So I think that like even when I was pretty pretty unflexible in a variety of different ways. I'm not sure if my values were the problem. Like my values were to be a moral and upstanding citizen, to do things in appropriate ways, to do it the right way, whatever that looked like, to feel safe and comfortable, to maybe a problematic value that I probably had at the time was to to feel like I was right in some way because doing things the right way was such a high value for me that it became a little problematic yeah. because I needed to start like framing myself as doing it right all the time, even if I wasn't. So there are these ways in which like good values can become kind of co-opted by the system and still lead to sort of problematic behaviors in different kinds of ways. Do you, do you sort of get what I'm describing here, Dad? Yeah. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. Well, for sure. I hearken all the way back to the EST training in 1975 and the, the key question, essentially, a key question, certainly, would you rather be right or happy? Can you enjoy discovering where you've been wrong? Can you mm. enjoy the process of shifting your belief system to accommodate to new information that could be contradictory? Can you enjoy that mm-hmm. process? That's a meta value. That's an over that, that turbocharges the growth process. And for me, that was, that's was that been a really useful thing to develop along the way, in many ways, to mm-hmm. realize that the most self-interested move I can make often in an interaction is to rapidly recognize where I've been wrong. Yeah, I, I think that what I was sort of trying to get to here is this notion that I've heard you speak to in the past about like trying to get down to the bottom of something, right? Okay. Because I had a value which was oriented around like doing things the right way or being appropriate, or being proper, or whatever it was. And this value came with a lot of judgment around people who were not doing things, quote-unquote, the right way. And that's what I thought that the baseline was, Yeah. right? I thought that I was at the bottom there. But the truth was that there were these other things that underpinned that value in some kind of an important way. And those other things were my, my own fears about doing things wrong. 
and my own fears about being perceived in ways that I didn't want to be perceived yeah. or being thought of as being a bad person or things like that. And because that was really the true root, that true root generated this perceived good value that then started dictating all of this behavior that I had that was problematic out in the world. Does that kind of structure make sense, what I'm, what I'm describing here, Dad? Oh, for sure. Yeah, what I needed to do basically was go down even one level further yeah. to understand that that was the core fear. Yeah. And maybe there were things even beneath it that I could explore or unearth in a way that would be useful for me that might lead to uh, more useful values, uh, like some of the ones that you're naming here about learning or being flexible or uh, do I care about being right or do I care about being happy, yeah. uh, which absolutely was was a useful inquiry for me. Yeah. And you're you're implying, so I'm going to make it explicit, which you know yeah, is implicit, the fear of the dreaded experience. That what did you yeah, fear? Totally. You feared totally. feeling something that would be painful as a result of events that you feared. But bottom line, the problem with the events is the experience of the events, and in, and in particular, an experience of pain. Totally right. And as we go through that process, often what happens for people as they try to go through that inquiry is that each of those layers has some amount of defensiveness associated with it. At least yeah. it did in my case, and I've seen that in other people. And even when it it feels like we enter this whole becoming something a little new inquiry with like a pretty clear notion of like what we want to be or what we want to let go of, what starts to happen as we actually go through the inquiry is all of this dust gets kicked up. Mm. Where all, all this like distraction and well, what if it's really this other thing and maybe it's actually that person's fault and whatever it might be. And so I'm wondering what you think helps people kind of get through that and get down to that other material or be able to like see that dreaded experience more clearly or whatever might support a person here? Well, this is something that I've done a lot of in myself and mm -hmm. um, helped others. It's kind of hard to describe. It's, I think Eugene Gendlin in focusing, mm -hmm. there's some, a lot of really good material there for people, including connecting with people who do focusing or take a little workshop or work with a focusing therapist or do it yourself on yourself. But basically, in effect, you're doing two things at the same time. You're moving into the material while moving out of the material. So you're feeling- you Describe what you mean by that a yeah. little bit? Yeah. So I would frequently have the experience in adulthood after I had a PhD and I was pretty credentialed, I would step into a group, like I'll be on a board or come to a party, come to a meeting, and very kind of subtly but quickly, I would start feeling like an outsider, which would then lead to me engaging behaviors that slightly would distance me from others, which made me feel like even more of an outsider in a circular way. And I would potentially have the impulse to step more into relatedness with the group as a whole and even say something about myself. And what would start to come over me would, would be a kind of a swerving away from doing that, a kind of sleepy, diffuse, dissociative stepping away. And other people might relate to that or not in different settings. So the process of growth in part was to really be mindful of what that experience was like and step into it in the ways I'm describing, like really feel it, feel the elements of it, and, and even feel down into what was younger in it, down to what we talk about, the tip of the root, all the way down with, at the same time, a kind of separation from it, a disidentification. So I'm, I'm both feeling it and really looking at it, even with a little bit of analytic skillfulness, like, oh, okay, understandable, Rick, that's what it was like for me in school. Okay, great, but it's not really true today. And so there's almost like you're moving in and moving back and then moving in again in these ways, maybe even in a kind of a spiraling way. You move in, then you move out to kind of observe and analyze and understand, have insight, then you move even more deeply in, and you're doing that. And in all that, you're guided by these qualities you, that you can cultivate in yourself of a certain fearlessness, 
inside your own mind. You want to get to the very back of the cave, no matter what's there. In it as well is a sense of a kind of, goes all the way back to our themes at the start about inner freedom and you know, valuing, hey, I don't want to be bound by these programs. I don't want to be the puppet of those, that old learning that's pulling my strings today, 40 years, you know, 30 years after junior high, I'm still walking through the same scripts. What? I don't want to be trapped in all that. Ew. You know, there's that sense of moxie on your behalf. Uh, and then even a kind of playfulness, like it's just the flippin' mind, whatever. It's just the mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, the planet is keep turning. Uh, a lot of stuff happens over a long period of time. A sense of perspective is a beautiful thing. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Totally, yeah. totally, so, totally. Yeah, well, a couple things that you've already named here, Dad. You've talked about cultivating a sense of perspective. Yeah. You know, hey, it's just the mind as as identified by that phrase. And you also talked for a minute there about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use these words loosely, a little bit of a movement between a more egocentric, I'm feeling this thing, this is how I feel sort of perspective where you're really moving into the feeling versus then the movement into maybe a slightly more like allocentric or like a third person perspective where you're kind of stepping out of it, being able to view the whole situation more broadly and letting that kind of inform how you process around it. Am I am I teasing totally. that out correctly here? Yeah, yeah, it could feel both when you move into it, it's sort of personal. And when you're even simultaneously moving back and out, it, it takes on this more impersonal quality. Like, oh, that's how minds unfold. Oh, that's what happens in childhood. Oh, that's neurosis. It's okay. <laughs> We're all neurotic. All right. You know, it has that sense to it. Totally. And that's like such a powerful tool for like dropping some identification with your experience, right? Because yeah. it, it lets you just view it more as an experience or as like a thing that happens to people or as a process that we go through, as a feeling that happens, as opposed to this like very ego-saturated or like eye-saturated way of being or looking at something. And you're right. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. And I'll be blunt, you know, the older I get, the crankier I get. <laughs> I don't know, maybe there, there are other virtues, but alongside that, I think there are a lot of people who they don't go all the way. They can describe, you know, analytically their own neurotic material and structures and dynamics. But when it comes to actually rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty, plunging into the material with intent, they're not there. They don't have that right? It's as if they're a bystander in the traffic jams inside their own mind. What do you think supports people in doing that? Particularly, I think it's sort of one thing if we're talking about some long-standing, difficult-to-change feature of a person's life, like you're dealing with addiction issues, yeah. or you have just a incredibly insecure attachment style brought on by by long-term forms of of trauma or difficult experiences or or whatever like obviously those are things that understandably um, are difficult to interact with and a person might not want to interact with for a whole bunch of different reasons and even when they try to they might be stymied in it so that's kind of like one category but for for things that are more, normal range for a person. Kind of like how I'm describing this kind of movement inside of myself about yeah. becoming more psychologically flexible, or you've described a few examples of in this episode with- um, Inhibitions in groups. Yeah, inhibitions. Yeah. yeah, totally. Great example. For those kinds of things, what do you think helps people get to the point where they like want to get their hands dirtier? It's a mystery to me, frankly. To some extent. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It was hard for me. I, I don't think that I was like not a hard worker or something, but there's there's something about it to your point that like is just is hard. Um, and I'm wondering if just in like your long practice with people, yeah, you, you found be helpful for them. Yeah. It's so easy for this to sound, you know, critical or whatnot. I mean it really in the frame of opportunity. And yeah. 
Totally. It's absolutely true. Like I've known multiple people who really got their their hands dirty. They they were up to their elbows in their psyche. They were, and they would get a short term benefit in my office, let's say. And by the time they hit the bottom of the stairs, or definitely walked in their own front door, the underlying physiological processes in their in their body had dragged them underwater again, or we just were not getting at the tip of the root. There was plenty of good effort, but yeah. still it just wasn't yielding yeah, results. And I, yeah, I'm, totally. That's, so, so there, you know, effort inside your mind, those three are great values, right? You know, bringing your heart to it, making efforts and learning along the way. They definitely were ticking the box of effort. And that's, and that's really important to see. When people really are ticking the box of effort and they're not getting much change, we have to look outside the frame in which they are making efforts. That's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something else going on, yeah. The mystery for me is people who unpack their mind and look at it almost indifferently while being in pain. So then what I think about is, you know, how to mobilize a greater sense of agency. Yeah, it takes me to learned helplessness like almost immediately. Yeah, and then so so then we step back and we go well, and then you start exploring other things. You know, do you really want to change? Mm. Do you really care Secondary enough yeah. about these opportunities for yourself? Sometimes you bump into situations where people do not feel entitled to change. They are continuing to live in purgatory, if not hell, because they believe it's appropriate punishment. And so the kind of results they might get of releasing pain, letting go of remorse, forgiving themselves and moving on, for example, they don't want to do because for different reasons. One, they feel like they still need to pay their penance. They won't give themselves permission in an existential, fundamental kind of way to turning a corner. That's another thing that I think is a, is a factor of growth and a belief that where we basically believe that I've suffered enough I've felt bad enough. I have investigated this enough. I've made enough amends. I've tried to repair enough. I really am giving myself permission to turn a corner. You know, I maybe whenever I think about this particular event or someone reminds me of it, eh, you know, I'll feel something, but I'm not, but I'm giving myself permission to stop being preoccupied with it, you know, to turn that corner. I'm allowed to turn the corner. And I, I think sometimes for people, they would, then there's this whole category in which they just they would keep getting their arms their hands dirty you know up to the elbows in their own psyche but they they just don't keep going and that's where your points i think about getting down to the tip of the root are really important people have different imaginations i have a kind of visual mythic imagination that's been enriched by a lot of material over the years and i just think of the imagery of you know heroism and pursuing and going deep into the bowels of the cave, willing to find the monster around the next turn. Just that willingness to keep going. And it's okay. It's not narcissism and flattery to think of it like that. It's, it's a supportive factor. Toward the very beginning of the episode, you talked about the idea of like telling the story of yourself through two different lenses. The first lens was the kind of more contracted, self-critical way of talking about the things mm -hmm. that have happened to you or the things that you've done, maybe. And then there was another way of telling that story. Yeah. And one of the things that I've really kind of wandered into for myself that's been helpful for me is how I frame limiting beliefs as not just being these kinds of classic, like, I can't learn. Or the example you gave earlier, like, I'm an ugly person. Yeah. Something like that. Like, clearly, those are, are beliefs about yourself that are negative in nature. And, you know, doing some work on them might be helpful for a person. But there are all these other beliefs that we could have that maybe aren't so, like, overtly negative, but nonetheless are problematic in some way. You know, those can be kind of tricky ones to work with. I've struggled to work with some of them in my own life. Like maybe they were good for a moment, but they're not good for right now. And one of the things that that I've got some juice out of is trying to like put those beliefs into a, a role in my life to almost kind of borrow the language from IFS that's sort of more useful for them these days. 
maybe that lets me lean into that like new way of of telling the story. I don't know if that's something that you've had to like work with in your own life or that you've seen other people work with, but I'm just wondering what you think about that. Many, many people, certainly if if they're rolling into my office, generally the so-called worried well, you know, mid-range issues. I think what predominates in people's narratives about themselves is a story of basically defeat mm. that's completely uncalled for. Negativity bias, the focus on roads untaken, doors unopened. Think about if someone's basic narrative is one of kind of trudging dutifully through life. If that's your view of yourself and your life, what's that going to create? It's going to create more trudging. On the other hand, if you have a view of yourself as a noble being who has been dealing with a lot of hard conditions and challenges and has still manifested a lot of pluck and courage and virtue along the way. And you're that person. You really are that person, which includes some defeats, some losses, but you really are that person. You really are that admirable character. Well, if you regard yourself in that way, what kind of actions naturally follow? You will be and act in certain ways that will in this year to come, that will be a lot better for you. And I think many, many people really could deserve a much nobler view of themselves, much more appreciative. Think about the, uh, appreciative inquiry. You know, we could do an episode on appreciative inquiry. Can you turn appreciative inquiry toward yourself? Could you describe what that looks like a little bit? Yeah. So appreciative inquiry is a whole domain. People can check out the Wikipedia reference. The two words are kind of right there, appreciation and inquiry. So there's an inquiry, but it's framed appreciatively rather than, mm. you know, critically, like a pro or like a prosecutor, right? So if you turn it toward yourself, you might ask yourself to begin with, wow, what's been hard for you? Where has it hurt? What have been some of the tough conditions you were dealt in this life? How have you suffered? How are you suffering? You know, what's difficult for you? It might start there. Okay. And, and then also, how, ha how have you coped with all that? What have you been able to accomplish even so? What have you been able to do and to be and to think and to say even so? Oh, what are some of the things you drew on in yourself to mobilize that coping, right? What would it be like to bring that kind of appreciative inquiry to yourself and then imagine, all right, in this year to come, what's a headline or two or three for me, you know, from that that's really important to me? One way into that for people as well, and I do it myself, is what sort of a person do you want to be? Mm -hmm. Like, what's your vision of that in, in, in terms of being? Like, what would it feel like in the body? Sort of if you step back and see yourself, what do you sort of look like? What are you doing? And having that vision within reach of the person you want to be, who's 99% exactly like you currently are. It's that 1%, you know, right? Our friend um, Dan Harris um, has, you know, 10% happier. Well, how about 1% different? But it's a really important 1%. You know, that's that's really worth people thinking about it. You know, what would it look like to be 1% more assertive? How do you want to be in your intimate relationships? Including maybe there are just some things you're, you realize, you know, they're never going to care about that. They ought to care about it. It would be right for them to care about it. They're never going to care about it. And you just disengage from that. You just step out of that script increasingly. How, what, is, what is that way of being? I think... In effect, you were talking about how doing precedes thinking and being precedes doing. So who do you want to yeah. be? And what's the sense of yeah. that? And then can you live into that way of being and create little supports for it, both in how you think, what your beliefs are, and also what your behaviors are and your environments are. So that those three become the banks of the stream that guide you into the life that you want.
Yeah, I thought that was really great, Dad. And those examples that you offered uh, that were very visceral in nature, like mm-hmm. the feeling-driven ones, I think can be really useful for people. And maybe along those lines, as we come to the end here, earlier on you were mentioning an example of a kind of person who was feeling tired, disengaged, disenchanted, like things kind of didn't really work out very well for them in the past. So, you know, why bother very much with the future? They're having a hard time getting their hands dirty, as you put it, for those reasons, getting their hands dirty inside of their own mind. For lack of a better way of putting it, they were feeling a little depressed, maybe a little dysthymic, a little kind of generally low about themselves or their life or their ability to enact change in some way. For people who feel more that way, what do you think are some of just like the very first steps that can help somebody who's in that kind of an experience or a situation start that process of kind of getting into it more? And we could do and have done full episodes on this. Oh, yeah, to, huge. To note, this is going to be a summary at the end here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, what's the opposite of a limiting belief? An expanding belief? Yeah, uh, expanding, you know, a generative, generative belief. There we are. There we are. Heuristic belief, generative. Yeah, a good belief is that it's good for you to discover what you could do differently and better. Mm. That's good for you to discover that. It's it's not that you should then feel ashamed of yourself or what a loser, what a failure. It's actually good to discover what you could have done better or how you could do something better in the future. Like right there, that's the essence of, that's a major aspect, let's say, of growth mindset having to do with how we act, not just what we know, right? Wow, and I think for a lot of people, they don't wanna realize that, you know, they really could have done it better. Like, oh my God, because they feel horrible. So it's important to reframe it. Reframing is a key term. We haven't used it yet here, where we take certain situations and we put them in a different frame. We change their perspective of them. In other words, the discovering where you have made mistakes or haven't done all that you could or that you fell short is actually a beautiful opportunity. It opens a door on the other side of which are unicorns and sunlight and and flowers and piles of gold, right? And the music is coming to discover where you screwed up, right? It's a total reframe. I love discovering where I screwed up. And just all all the language that you're using there, Dad, about that kind of like the bright, the movement, the energy, the the exploding stars yeah. and shining lights and all of it, that itself can be kind of mobilizing and helpful sometimes for people. Yeah, so it's, it's good. Okay, so that's one. Second is to really ask a person a question. You know, it's very simple. We, we think about this routinely in the outer world. Like say, let's say somebody is trying to, you know, make pancakes, they're doing some baking. And for some reason, the pancakes- I love making pancakes. Okay, they're just flat. They're, they're like flat like tortillas. They're just not good. What happened? Well, a person would then naturally, you know, maybe they're with someone who's a friend, a good cook perhaps, who might say, oh, walk me through what you did. Just walk me through your process. And then as you walk through the process, you realize, oh, okay, here's where there could be some improvements. Here's where, oh, there there was an ingredient missing. Oh, here's where they stopped, but they actually should have kept going, right? Walk yourself through your own process. Millions of people have engaged the psychological skills and, and tools and steps you've taken. They got benefit. Why didn't you? Mm. Now, and again, you need that first principle to be able to tolerate facing that question because that question is the portal to the unicorns and rainbows and sprinkles on the frosting of the cake of life, right? Like, what are they doing that you aren't doing? What could you do differently inside your own mind in how you engage your feelings, your thoughts, your own inner material? What are you actually doing? And so then, and those, those are things that really address that sort of defeatist attitude. Ugh, it just won't work. I tried therapy. You know, I tried that handbook. You know, I, I, just, I did that meditation. It just didn't do anything for me. Well, okay, maybe it was not a good meditation, but what were you doing actually inside your own mind? 
as you were listening to that meditation. Well, honestly, I was thinking about the last game of the San Francisco 49ers, really. You know, I wasn't really doing it. Oh, well, great. Stone unturned. Maybe next time, do the actual meditation and then see if it doesn't work for you. And then the last thing is, is this is so useful, is to imagine what's the way you'd like to be? And to be the way you'd like to be, what's a key factor in how you'd like to be? And even mm-hmm. what's a key factor in developing that factor, which then supports how you'd like to be? So in other words, you work backwards. Stephen Covey talked about, you know, start with the end in mind in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Start with the end in mind. What's the, that's what I do very much clinically. I'm always asking myself, what would help if it were more present in this person's mind? And what, what could we do to, to foster it being more present inside their mind? You want to ask yourself, what would help you if it were more present inside your mind? And then work backwards from what it would take to develop that there. So you have kind of an aim. Maybe it's, it's a release of that material. And to get to that full release, you've got to get to the bottom of the tip of the root. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be to really believe and adopt a new view. And so you're trying to help yourself believe it. Like, what are you trying to help yourself? You know, are you a, a traitor to yourself or an ally to yourself in terms of what you're trying to help yourself believe? Oh, that's really great. The The only thing that I would add here at the end, in addition to all of the things that you named there, Dad, are some pretty basic behavioral modifications that a person might find accessible to them. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes the what becomes an impediment when people are in that kind of like spot that we're describing here is that everything feels really big and really hard. Yeah, It all good. feels really big and really hard. Getting out of bed feels big and hard. So Lord knows that going to the gym feels impossible, you know? So I think that we get back to that idea of like the 1% change, but the 1% change is a 1% behavioral change. Can you get your body into movement in some kind of really basic way that's really very limited? Can you walk around the block mm-hmm. if you're in an environment where you can walk around the block? But assuming that you are, can you do that? Can you write one paragraph about how you feel? Can you write down three emotions that you've experienced? Can you do anything? Can you do something? Because what we tend to find is that these things build on themselves. And the more that we do something, the more we start to do all sorts of different kinds of things that end up being very useful for us. But the hardest step is often the first one. So the question becomes, how can we make that first step like as simple as humanly possible? That's right. Make the efforts you can make toward what you really care about. Today, Rick and I talked about how we can become somebody new, how we can turn over a new leaf, let go of some behavior that's been holding us back, or otherwise re-envision who we are. And this episode really had some sprawl to it. We talked about a lot of different things. It was kind of a being well, greatest hits episode in some ways. Because really what we were exploring was like, how do we change, right? How do we actually go through a process of letting something go and taking something in, these two pillars of Rick's work? And normally when we're engaging with this process, particularly around now toward the end of the year, most of the time people start with some kind of a vision, some kind of an image of what they would like, this thing that they want to do more of, something they want to bring into their life, any just kind of good thing that's motivating them these days, right? So we've got this target. And then alongside that target are generally these negative feelings that are motivating us to pursuing it. We have a feeling of stuckness, maybe, or we feel like we're just kind of living the same day over and over again. Or maybe we feel like if there was this one thing that was different, so many other things would change for us. And then people will try to change their behavior to pursue that target. They'll try to take on a new habit or think about themselves differently or whatever it is that they're doing. And for some people, that works great. That's just, that's enough. That's all they needed to do. But a lot of the time what people experience is that just wanting to be different in some way is not nearly enough. And so we spent most of the episode exploring what gets in the way of that wanting. Why is wanting not enough to change in a meaningful way? 
And typically for people, what happens is they get to this point, they have a moment of clarity where they get a little bit of space between them and their behaviors, between this sense of who I am and what I'm really doing or thinking in the world. They just have this moment of insight that kind of emerges organically. And typically what's revealed by this moment of insight is some view, some way of thinking or being out in the world that's impeding us in some kind of way. The typical way that people talk about this is through the language of limiting beliefs. I think that phrase is a bit of a mixed bag myself. There are plenty of positive beliefs that can also have negative consequences for us. There are different values we can have. There might be understandably good values that can also hold us back in different sorts of ways. So it's really a very complex puzzle here that people are dealing with. But whatever the words are that you want to use, something about who we are has become entrenched and contracted. Our self-concept has become tight. And that tight self-concept leads to us behaving in the world in ways that flow naturally from it and are very understandable, but are probably not good for us. And even if they're okay, they're definitely not flexible. And if they're not flexible, then as the world changes around us, we can't change with it. So you see people who have all of these behaviors all of these associations and assumptions and views and values that might have really worked for them a year ago or five years ago or 20 years ago, but really aren't helping them out these days. But nonetheless, there's still that contraction. And then we spent the rest of the episode talking about what do we do about that? To highlight just a few of the things that we talked about, both Rick and I really emphasized this notion of burrowing down through the layers of the material to try to get to really what's present underneath it. And I used myself as an example a couple of times through the episode because I had some really entrenched beliefs that were not helping me out in the course of my life, and I had to figure out what to do about them. And one of the things that really helped me out was being able to get through the belief that I had to see the fears that it rested upon. And my, my constrained focus on doing things the right way was driven by my own real fears, the, the experiences that I dreaded, which all came down to feeling decidedly wrong, feeling like a bad person, feeling like people didn't like me, feeling like I had made a mistake or done something wrong. And so I created this value around rightness that was very defensible, extremely defensible view. Like a lot of people would look at that and go like, yeah, that's a totally fine value to have, right? But that value was shielding this more vulnerable material that was really constraining my behavior at the end of the day. So what I had to do is get down a level further into that material to be able to work with it and to maybe even find values that were even deeper than that kind of superficial value related to rightness that could then really motivate my behavior in more positive and enjoyable and like useful ways in the scope of my broader life. And one of the things Rick emphasized as part of this process is the importance of being willing to just get our hands dirty, to, to get down into the muck of the psyche in different kinds of ways and really explore in a, in a curious way what's going on there inside of our own minds, to not feel like an authority right now on our own process, to have a sort of open-mindedness toward our own psyche, right? A sort of beginner's mind about the whole thing, a questioning of just what if? What if this thing isn't quite what I think it is? What if there were this slightly different way of being in the world? What if the assumption that I have about this is just plain wrong? And there were a few specific tools that he offered that I thought were really great. The first one was about creating some space between yourself and the issues that you're observing. When we're really wrapped up in our experience, when we've got a lot of egocentrism, a lot of I, when there's just this like very tight link between the sense of who we are and the sense of how we think, it's really hard to get in there. It's really hard to create change. These things are really enmeshed in each other. So one of the most valuable things we can do is cultivate the ability to take a step back, take a slightly wider view, and view the whole thing from almost a third-person perspective, if you find that doable. Then alongside that, he talked about this kind of pendulation that we can have. He didn't use that word specifically. It comes from uh, Peter Levine and somatic experiencing and I'm sure other people have used it as well, but that's where I'm familiar with it from. This kind of movement both away from and into 
the emotions that we're experiencing, where we both really feel them fully and then really take a step back and observe them more impartially. And then we go back in to really feeling them fully, and then we take some space from them. And that movement back and forth could be really, really helpful for people. And alongside that process, he talked about this more meta process that we can go through of really redescribing the story of our lives, rebuilding the narratives that we have about who we are and why we've done the things that we've done. And particularly, he returned a couple of times to this question of, can we view ourselves in a more heroic light? Can we frame our story aspirationally? Can we give appropriate credit to the challenges that we've overcome along the way rather than fixating on maybe the things that we haven't achieved? Is it possible that by turning the lens just a little bit, we can really frame things differently and in doing so, open up this sense of freedom and possibility about what might happen in the future. And related to that, at the end of the episode, we talked about this example of a person who's really shut down their view of what might be possible. They've uh, they've got some learned helplessness going on because understandably, you know, things haven't worked out for them in the past. They view their lives as not being tremendously successful. If they tried in the past and it didn't work, why should they try in the future? And one way into working with that is by reappraising whether or not things just haven't worked in the past or whether there might be reasons that they didn't work out. And things might be just a little bit different in the future than they were back then. And sometimes by going through this process of reevaluating our personal narrative, we can really just crack this whole thing open. And in doing so, view ourselves in a completely different light. See strengths that maybe we didn't see in the past, Maybe even identify some values that feel particularly real for us now that we didn't even really notice along the way. And that doesn't always change everything on its own. But just having that more aspirational view or stance about who we are, where we've come from, and what might be possible for us in the future can really be a huge game changer for people. So... I hope you found today's episode helpful. I really enjoyed recording this one. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and would like to support us, the best way to do that is just by subscribing. Uh, Actually, that's probably the second best way. The best way to do it is by telling a friend about the podcast and getting them to subscribe to it too. Uh, It's truly the best way that we have to reach new people, and it's a massive support for the podcast if you're able to do that. Also, if you could leave a comment, a comment on the YouTube, if you're watching it, a comment on your podcast platform of choice, if they let you leave ratings and reviews, that's great. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.